It was supposed to be a leisurely day spent on the beach along Lake Michigan by three friends, but before the sun set, the trio of women had vanished. This is the story of the missing sunbathers of the Indiana Dunes. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. This episode talks about some dark topics. Listener discretion is advised. At around 8 a.m. on the morning of July 2nd, 1966, 21-year-old Ann Miller drove her four-door 1955 Buick from her family's home on Rochdale Circle in suburban Lombard, Illinois, to pick up her friend Patricia Blau, 19, on Drury Lane in Westchester, Illinois. As she was leaving the house, Blau reportedly said to her mother, quote, We'll be home early, Mom, because Renee has to make dinner for her husband. They then picked up their friend Renee Brule, 19, at her home on West Fulton Street on Chicago's west side. Ann Miller had recently been employed at the upscale suburban Oak Brook Polo Club, where she exercised horses. Renee Broll was referred to in early reports as a, quote, wife of a college student, and quote, more on that in a bit, and Patricia Blau was a secretary at Commonwealth Edison. Patricia and Renee had been friends since their days at Proviso West High School in Maywood and later became friends with Anne through their shared love of horses. Along the 60-mile trip to the beach, they stopped to pick up a bottle of suntan lotion for $1.53. When they arrived at the park at 10 a.m., it was already 88 degrees Fahrenheit. Within the hour, it would be 90 degrees and a sweltering 92 degrees by noon. Estimates range from 8,600 to 9,000 people were at the park that day, along with 2,178 cars. Once the three parked, they walked about three-quarters of a mile from the park pavilion to the beach. They found a good spot about 100 feet from the water, spreading out a beach blanket near three poplar trees. They all stripped down to their swimsuits and began walking to the lake shore. Ann Miller, 5 foot 2 inches with brown hair and blue eyes, wore a blue two-piece bathing suit with a red belt. Brown-haired, brown-eyed, 5 foot 4 inch Patricia Blau, Pat or Patty to friends, wore a bright yellow bikini with ruffles. Renee Broll, the tallest of the three at 5 foot 9 inches, had brown hair and hazel eyes and was sporting a brown swimsuit with a pattern of gold leaves and green flowers. The day wore on as people from Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan all converged in this seemingly happy place, enjoying the sunshine and cool water. As evening approached and the sun began to set, Mike Yankalasa and Francis Cicero, a young couple from Chicago that had been sitting by the blanket the three women had spread out by the poplar trees, noticed the trio hadn't returned to their spot. They found a park ranger, Bud Connor, great park ranger name, to let him know. There were three girls. They left all their belongings on the blanket around noon and never came back, the couple explained. They were out in the water, talking to some guy in a boat. 
Then they got aboard and took off, heading west, end quote. The couple described the boat, saying it was, quote, white with a blue inside and it had an outboard motor. It wasn't real big, maybe 14 to 16 feet long. Thinking the three women may be out on a moonlight cruise, park ranger Bud Connor gathered up the left-behind belongings in the blanket and brought them to the ranger office for safekeeping. With the weekend in full swing, Ann Miller, Patricia Blau, and Renee Broll were likely not top of mind for the park ranger crew. That is until the morning of July 4th. That's when Park Superintendent William Svetik received a call from 59-year-old Harold Blau, Patricia's father. Blau was concerned his daughter had not returned home from her outing. Svetik took down the information Blau had about his daughter and her friends, Renee Broll and Ann Miller, and thought to check the bundle of items from the beach Bud Connor had deposited a day and a half before. Among Ann Miller's items at the park ranger's station was a keychain with a miniature Illinois license plate with the number 265487, a thermos bottle, a polo shirt, her denim shorts, shoes, a white bathing cap, and a comb. Renee Broll's things included a large towel, a blouse, her shorts, some cigarettes, suntan lotion, 25 cents, and her pocketbook containing about $55 in checks. Patty Blau had left a yellow robe, a pair of sunglasses, a transistor radio, a white print towel, and her wallet, which contained $5. Grabbing the keychain with the miniature Illinois license plate, investigators found a car in the parking lot with a matching number. They had found the car the three women drove to the park, but there was no sign of them anywhere. Park Superintendent Svetik notified the Illinois State Police at 8.50 a.m., who then notified Detective Sergeant Edward Burke, a state policeman who was regarded as one of the best detectives on the force. Burke went to the park and started his investigation, and at 3.50 p.m. he requested a search of Lake Michigan by the Coast Guard. To give you an idea of the area at the time, a news article in 1966 described the 2,200-acre park as, quote, a wilderness of dunes, forests, and swamp, end quote. Both the police and worried parents appealed to the public for any information that might help find Anne, Renee, and Patty. More than 100 calls were received from people claiming to have seen the women in Michigan, Illinois, and Wisconsin. Some who said they were on the beach that day reported they saw the girls get into a boat with three men. Maybe it was two men or just one man. One constant was a description of a tanned man with wavy hair possibly wearing a beach jacket. Park Superintendent Svetik said he was, quote, 90% sure, end quote, it was an accidental drowning. But both Patty Blau and Renee Broll were considered excellent swimmers, and Ann Miller was a fair swimmer. Police and volunteers distributed 5,000 circulars containing pictures and descriptions of the women to those coming into the park. Slowly, people came forward with more information. A lifeguard claimed he saw the three women get into a motorboat with three men and remembered cautioning one of the women about dangling her feet in the water. One witness claimed they saw the women get into a small three-hold boat and later get into a larger 
26 to 28 foot Trojan cabin cruiser. Quote, one man left the cruiser and went directly to the beach and talked with the three girls, according to one witness who said they fit the description of the missing trio. The girls accompanied the man to the cruiser, boarded it, and it put out into the lake. End quote. A Gary, Indiana lawyer named Robert Blatz, who saw three women get on the boat from a distance, saw that the boat was equipped with a radio telephone antenna, but had no name on its stern. Harold Blau, Patricia's father and a lieutenant colonel in the Illinois Civil Air Patrol, said in the press, quote, My wife is heartbroken. Every time the telephone rings, a knife grows through her heart. She is afraid of what she will hear. We want Patricia back very badly. There must be someone who can help us. Harold Blau was relentless in his search for the women. With A.W. Hart, a Civil Air Patrol major in West Suburban Hillside, and Detective Fred Miller of the Westchester Police Department, Harold Blau flew a Cessna 210 four-seater plane along the Lake Michigan shoreline from Calumet Harbor to Michigan City. Blau, Hart, and Miller made several passes along the beach and over wooded and summer home areas, taking photographs from above that Blau would pour over in great detail, looking for any sign that might explain the fate of his daughter and her friends. Quote, If I can just find one small fact that will be of use to the police, he said, remaining hopeful, in my heart, I feel this is an abduction. My daughter is a regular reader of the newspapers. If she were free to move, she would have read newspaper accounts of the search for her and her friends, and she would have come home, he said to anyone who would listen. On July 6th, authorities with the Coast Guard examined a motorboat at the Lettington Yacht Club in Michigan, some 150 miles from the park. Also that day, two aircraft and a helicopter from the Civil Air Patrol along with the Indiana State Police, Coast Guard boats, and soldiers from an Army missile site close to the dunes joined the search. According to the Terre Haute Star newspaper in Indiana, on Thursday, July 7th, more than 100 volunteers made a door-to-door search of 250 cottages within a four-mile radius of where the women went missing without success. Bloodhounds walked the sand with their handlers. A civil defense amphibious truck with four scuba divers arrived at the beach in response to a hypothesis that the women may have drowned. There was boat debris found at the Bailey Generating Station of the Northern Illinois Public Service Company, about four miles west of the park, that was later dismissed. After looking more closely, investigators said the debris likely came from a metal rowboat and had been in the water for at least three weeks. Police also searched marinas and boat docks along the southern tip of Lake Michigan in their quest to find the 16- to 18-foot trimaran runabout and the 26- to 28-foot Trojan cabin cruiser. In looking through the items left behind at the beach, authorities discovered an unmailed letter in Renee Broll's pocketbook, a letter addressed to Jeffrey, her husband of 15 months. The letter, written two weeks before her disappearance, suggested that Jeffrey Brule, a 21-year-old accounting student, spent too much time with his friends working on hot rod cars, and Renee was considering leaving him. 
Both Renee's young husband and members of Renee's family downplayed the importance of the unmailed letter, saying Renee may have been upset when she wrote it, but changed her mind about sending it. For investigators, it was a clue that Renee may have been looking for a way to leave an unhappy life behind. There was a lot of news coverage of Harold Blau's quest to find his daughter, but oddly little mention about the other families. Renee Broll's husband, Jeffrey, who was working with the authorities in the days after the women went missing, was reportedly put under a doctor's care days after the disappearance due to the strain of the search. While some authorities may have preferred the idea that the women left voluntarily, it was odd to many that they left behind everything on the beach, not even taking the cash they had. Patricia Blau had returned from a race in Winnipeg, Canada, days before, where her horse Hank had won $716, nearly $6,400 in today's money. Her father Harold would later say Patty's horse had winnings of around $3,000, nearly $27,000 adjusted for inflation that Patty had not yet collected. Her thoroughbred was worth twice that. A few weeks later, the Chicago Sun-Times reported that Olaf Johnson, a Chicagoan known as, quote, the man of the x-ray mind, end quote, said on July 23rd he was confident the three girls were in Saugatuck, Michigan, and that each had bleached their hair blonde and changed their hairstyles. Within the week, authorities went to Saugatuck and questioned bartenders, waitresses, and horse stable owners in the area. A day later, another waitress in Saugatuck claimed to see three women with short blonde hair accompanied by a man at her nightclub. None of these Saugatuck leads amounted to anything in the search for the missing women. By the end of July, Detective Sergeant Edward Burke, now in charge of the investigation, said they were reviewing film footage shot by an amateur photographer from that day for any sign of Patricia, Anne, and Renee, or of the tan man with the wavy hair, or even the two boats. Park Superintendent William Svedek had issued a request to the public for any pictures taken at the park on July 2nd and had received more than 50. For all the talk of mysterious boats, dyed blonde hair, and unhappy marriages, the fact remains that Lake Michigan is the deadliest of all the Great Lakes, with 1,638 miles of shoreline. Could it be that the women simply drowned and their bodies had yet to turn up? I almost forgot to mention the Coast Guard estimated there were as many as 6,000 boats on Lake Michigan that day. If they were on a boat that failed in the lake, why were there no reports of a missing boat or the person who owned the boat? There was still no sign of the three women, the men on the boats, or even the boats two months later in September of 1966. In a story in the Chicago Tribune, Indiana State Police said they believed the girls, quote, ran off, end quote, on their own. Patricia Blau's father, Harold, did not agree, saying that his daughter had no reason to run off. Quote, she was an adult girl who was given every freedom. If she wanted to go somewhere, her mother and I would not object. End quote. I should mention, all three women left their shoes with the blanket on the beach. I think even if you were fully committing to a disappearance, you could still take your shoes with you without tipping anyone off. Harold Blau reiterated his daughter's dedication to horses, especially her own. She loved that horse. He said, no one could take care of the horse but her. 
If she wanted to run off, she would have made arrangements for someone to take care of the horse. She didn't make any arrangements. Blau claimed to have personally checked out many leads flying more than 1,000 miles to do so. He stated at the time he thought his daughter, as well as her friends Renee and Anne, was dead or, quote, being held someplace against her will, end quote. There's something sinister to this, Blau said. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm afraid I'll never see my daughter alive again. Weeks went by, and not surprisingly, news coverage of three attractive white women on a beach going missing got a lot of press. Dick Wiley, the son of a Gary, Indiana cop and a crime reporter slash photographer who worked for the Gary Post-Tribune in northwest Indiana and the Chicago Sun-Times during the 1950s and 60s, was the first newsman at the park that July 4th. Wiley had thought the disappearance might be linked to a white slavery ring, but his take on the case eventually drilled down to this. According to Wiley, the three women hung out at a tavern in West Suburban Hodgkins, Illinois, and he believed that Patty Blau and Ann Miller, both single, fell for married men, described as, quote, ex-cons and dope pushers, end quote. They met at the tavern and both got pregnant. Abortion was illegal in Illinois at the time, but there was a house just across the state border in Gary, Indiana, where a husband and wife team would perform the procedure. Wiley claimed that same husband and wife team ran a floating abortion clinic aboard a houseboat offshore in Lake Michigan, and that Blau and Miller arranged to terminate their pregnancies that day. Wiley said they left their belongings on the beach because they thought they'd be back soon. According to the then 78-year-old Wiley in a 2012 New York Daily News story, quote, I believe the women got to the houseboat, but something went wrong with one of the procedures, Wiley said. They might have lost one girl, and they did away with the other two because they couldn't leave witnesses. I mean, maybe? But really, a procedure like that, on a boat? Why not drive the extra few miles to lovely Gary, Indiana on somewhat solid ground for something like that? In mid-November 1966, more than four months after the women disappeared without a trace, Mr. and Mrs. Blau organized 20 Civil Air Patrol volunteers to search a swampy area near Stevensville, Michigan, about 40 miles east of the park. The area they searched was near an abandoned riding stable. Harold Blau said they were looking for ground that had been disturbed. Quote, I prayed we wouldn't find them in a grave there, but it was something we had to do for our own peace of mind. End quote. Another bit of weirdness in the case. About four months before the disappearance at the Indiana Dunes, friends of Patty Blau's noticed an injury to her face that, quote, could have been caused by a fist, end quote. When friends pressed her about it, she revealed that she was in some sort of trouble involving, quote, some syndicate people, end quote, she knew. In June of 1965, more than a year before the three women went missing, a 22-year-old professional horse rider named Cheryl Rood from Hinsdale, Illinois, was killed by a car bomb. 
Root was attempting to move a 1965 Cadillac owned by her employer, George Jane, at the Tri-Color Stables in Palatine, Illinois, when three sticks of dynamite rigged to the starter exploded, killing her instantly. Cheryl Root's mother claimed that George Jane called her sobbing after the explosion, saying, quote, Why did it happen to her? It was meant for me. George Jane voluntarily took a lie detector test, which he passed and offered $5,000, about $46,000 in today's money, for information leading to the arrest of those responsible for the death of his employee. It would later be revealed that George Jane and his brother Silas Jane, who owned stables in Park Ridge, Illinois, were up to some hinky stuff involving the sale and murder for insurance money of horses. A horse syndicate, if you will. I went down a deep, deep rabbit hole on all this bonkers stuff about these brothers and will likely dedicate an episode to this at some point. Ann Miller, Renee Brull, and Patty Blau had frequented George Jane's Tricolor Stables in Palatine, now the site of Harper Community College. When investigators went through the effects left behind by the three women at the beach, they found the phone numbers of George Jane and Silas Jane's then-wife, Martha. It was also revealed that a South Suburban man who worked for Silas Jane once owned a white and blue power boat, a boat he often took to the Indiana Dunes. Of course, in true Chicago fashion, when investigators followed up on this boat, the man's wife claimed it had been, because Chicago, destroyed in a fire. One prevailing hypothesis about the disappearance of the three women is that they overheard or saw something at the stables that someone viewed as a liability. Did they know who planted the bomb that killed Sherry Rood? Did they hear something else regarding the criminal activities of one or more of the Jane brothers? My first thought putting this together was, if they knew something, why would the bad guys wait a year to react? And then I realized if one or more of the three women had seen something but kept quiet about it at the time, only to let something slip out a year later, that may have been enough for their fates to be sealed. Silas Jane would later be convicted of conspiracy to murder in the death of his brother, George, who was shot to death while playing cards with his family in the basement of their home on Banbury Lane in northwest suburban Inverness. Kane, meet Abel. One other hypothesis was brought forth by Patty's brother, who believed that the three had gone to the beach to stage their disappearance, but the person they thought was there to help them was in fact employed by Silas Jane, and they were killed. On the four-year anniversary of the trio's disappearance, Harold Blau was quoted in a Tribune article admitting he understood, quote, that the girls have now matured four more years, and I believe that if they were alive, they would realize what their families are going through, and they would get in touch with us. In the autumn of 1975, nine years after the three went missing, the Indiana State Police received a letter from a spiritualist in Montana who urged the authorities to check the site of an old cabin on a bluff overlooking the southern end of Lake Michigan, for the remains of the three women. The note described rickety stairs, 
dark-colored sand, and a lawn chair with its bottom busted out. While the details described in the note closely match the area, right down to the chair with the busted-out bottom, authorities spent three days digging and found nothing. Patricia Blau's mother and father retired to Florida in 1970, where they continued to try to find answers as to what happened to their daughter Patricia and her friends after they went missing on that hot day in July of 1966. Sadly, Harold Blau died in October of 1987 at the age of 80 without ever getting an answer. The three women would now be in their late 70s if they are still alive, but from everything I've read, that is pretty unlikely. The case remains open, although not active. The Indiana Dunes State Park, where the three women were last seen, is now called the Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore. So, what do you think, listener? Did the three go swimming and drown without anyone noticing with their remains never being found? Were the three involved in a horrible boating accident that somehow left no physical trace of the boat or any of its passengers? Were they victims of an abduction that turned to murder aboard a boat? Did they plan to run away but something or someone stopped them from doing so and their murders were covered up? Did Ann Miller's alleged pregnancy result in an accidental abortion death with her two friends killed to keep them from going to the authorities? Or is there another explanation as to how three women with their lives ahead of them vanished from the Indiana Dunes on that holiday weekend in 1966? I do hope you'll check out the Chicago History Podcast, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram posts with pictures and articles this week and weigh in in the comments with your thoughts. Thanks for listening to today's episode about the missing sunbathers of the Indiana Dunes. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Honest. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to a number of books and other items related to this subject and other parts of Chicago's amazing history, if you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. The amazing original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John. Hey, Schneider, Top Notch, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Head to the Indiana Dunes for a relaxing day. Either way, learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. <laughs>